Hey there, Greybeardians. Welcome back, and thanks for joining me on another episode of Cybersecurity Greybeard, the podcast that helps students, early professionals, and retrainees learn, grow, and advance in the cybersecurity profession. If you have any suggested topics, reach out. I'd like to hear from you. Make sure to email questions, comments, and episode recommendations to cybergraybeard at gmail.com. In this episode, I continue the interview style introduced a couple of weeks ago. Let me know what you think. Do these episodes add value? Are they helpful? Are you interested? Are you skipping them? Is this something that's of interest to you? Because if it is, I have found a way to get really high quality guests and I hope you learn from them as much as I'm learning. They're really good conversations. I'm trying to highlight the journey of other professionals and have their stories help you learn, grow, and advance in your own adventure. Today, I'd like to welcome Perry Carpenter. He's the CISO and MSIA who currently serves as Chief Evangelist and Strategy Officer for Know Before, the world's most popular security awareness and simulated phishing platform. A recognized thought leader on security awareness and the human factors of security, Perry has provided security consulting and advisory services for the world's best-known brands. His previous book, Transformational Security Awareness, What Neuroscientists, Storytellers, and Marketers Can Teach Us About Driving Secure Behaviors, quickly gained a reputation as the go-to guide for security awareness professionals worldwide. And in 2021, he was inducted into the Cybersecurity Canon Hall of Fame. He's the creator and host of the popular 8th Layer Insights podcast and co-author of the new book, The Security Culture Playbook, an executive guide to reducing risk and developing your human defense layer, published by Wiley in April of 2022. And you can learn more at securityculturebook.com. All of the links are in the notes of the episode, so be sure to check those out. Before I get started with the interview, again, I want to mention Josh B. Mysola. He's my mentee in Africa that's trying to relocate to Canada and study cybersecurity. Josh and I met as I was leaving my last job. He was kind and supportive, understanding my situation and stance. I'd like to return the favor and have my audience help out by raising money for his relocation. Please visit the Give, Send, Go site and donate just a few dollars. Many have asked if they can help me because of the podcast, and my comment is all season. I'm donating all funds to Josh. So skip that cup of coffee and go ahead and make a donation at Give, Send, Go. You can either search Give, Send, Go for cybersecurity and select Fund an International Cybersecurity Student or click the link under the episode notes. Now, on with the show. Tell me about your journey. How did you get started in oh, information security, yeah. cybersecurity, or information technology? How, how did you begin? I mean, I have a degree in economics, but I happen to work in a computer store, and here I am 30 years later as a sales engineer. Um, yeah, I'm very much the same way. So my degrees um, were in, one was in biblical studies with an emphasis on ancient languages, and another one was in philosophy. And uh, then I went to law school for two years and hated that, and Ended up taking some computer science courses because computers were always my first love. Um, got hired by a transportation company called J.B. Hunt uh, in the middle of that and was on the research and development team writing code that would let trucks talk to satellites so that they could send and receive email or get routed for fuel. Um, and then ended up going over to Walmart and uh wrote the email system that was used in the stores and clubs, uh, Sam's Club, for about five years. And in that time, uh, shifted into security because when you're dealing with email, you're dealing with uh, groups. When you're dealing with groups, you're dealing with roles. And at that point, once you started dealing with groups and roles, it was at the, uh, the time that NT4 was going away and Active Directory was coming on board. 
And um, at that point, I had to start really, really educating myself on groups, roles, uh, the way that LDAP works, the way that uh, security roles work, uh, and then ended up going pretty hardcore into identity management and ran Walmart's first identity management, identity and access management program. Um, so that was the the traversal into security. I would say that, um, and then since then, there's been a you know smattering of other companies I've worked for, uh, including covering identity and access management at Gartner and run running the uh, security uh, research area at Gartner that covered security awareness and a few other different areas, and then now working at a vendor in security awareness. But um, I, I would say that those things that I did in college and uh, as I was trying to find myself, they they weren't useless. I actually use a lot of that every day. I mean, a philosophy degree tells you how to view the world and how to make arguments and how to understand uh, why people believe the things that they do. The you know part of the law school degree um, tells you a lot of the same things. It's you know how to uh, how to make good arguments how to read things critically, how to read contracts, how to think about business, how to understand, how to negotiate. Um, a lot of the intricacies that come with privacy regulation, all, all that comes forward, even though I then spent a few years just doing programming. It gave me a way to view the industry that I was in. That's great. I love it. I mean, a degree in biblical studies, philosophy, and law, and here you are deep in a, in a very senior you know, company in a senior role in information security. I talk a bit about different aspects of cybersecurity, whether it is project management or even sales. You mentioned identity. We have firewalls, encryption. There's so many different areas. It's a very diverse world. And it's interesting for you and for your journey, identity is a, a big deal, even in your role today, I believe. So tell us about Know Before. Start with the background on Kevin. I, I don't think much of my audience knows about Kevin Mendick. I think many of them are too young. So talk about him. Talk about Know Before, what you do there, and how identity, which you've been doing now for decades, still plays a major role in what you do. Yeah. So um, I'll back up a step even before Kevin. So Know Before was started by a guy named Stu Showerman, who is still the current CEO. And um, Stu was a serial entrepreneur, and the company that he had before, no before, was actually a virus scanning and malware protection company. And uh, Stu sold that company. <clears throat> it was uh, Viper. Uh, Stu sold that and was retired for maybe three or four days and then needed another challenge. Yeah. And the thing that he realized as he was thinking about the antivirus space is a lot of the reasons that people even have to deal with viruses and that antivirus and malware companies have to play catch up all the time is because the bad guys will find ways to bypass everything and then slip something on somebody's machine. And the most frequent way that they do that is through some kind of social engineering and the most frequent way of accomplishing that through social engineering is phishing. So Stu wanted to start a company that really worked on training the end user and then spearheading that with phishing awareness and simulations. Um, Kevin comes on about two years later. And those of you that don't know the name Kevin Mitnick, uh, Kevin is a, you know, one of the most old school hackers that you'll ever hear about. He was... Uh, very well known back in the 90s, especially uh, late 80s, early 90s. 
and he was into um, all the things that you think about. If you ever watch a movie like War Games, it is that era of technology and that era of discovering the boundaries of what all this technology can do and how you can influence it. So um, he was way back in the days of phone freaking and playing with the uh, telephony systems. But then also um, <clears throat> he made some um, questionable choices back then in uh, the way that he wanted to interact with different systems, because in his mind, it was a little bit of a playground. It was like, oh, I can uh, touch this system. I wonder if I, now I can accidentally uh, or, or find a way to get in. And then if I find a way to get in, I wonder how far I can get within the systems, what kind of things I can see, uh, and so on. And so that led him um, into, of course, like it does, uh, getting into a little bit of trouble. And as he got into a little bit of trouble, it also led him to be uh, somebody who was of, of interest to various agencies. And he led, he led the FBI and others on a manhunt for a few years and then uh, ended up in prison as a result of that. But um, when it comes to Kevin, there was an entire mythology that arose around him as well. I mean, one of the during the sentencing period of uh, his his conviction, um, he had and this this actually worked. Uh, he had one of the lawyers arguing uh for sentencing and said, we need to put Kevin in solitary confinement because this guy could, if he gets access to a phone, he can whistle the launch codes and to NORAD and, and, you know, cause a nuclear war, um, you know, totally untrue, but that just shows the mythology that arose around that. It also is, I think, an artifact of the time is everybody's trying to figure out what are the boundaries and limitations of technology and how people interface with it. Um, and so Kevin did, uh, you know, did his time, has come out on the other end and is reformed, but still gives his life to understanding how systems can be hacked. And then he also does a lot of consulting around that. Um, he's also um, when you talk about uh, things like rehabilitation, um, one of the things that we have to think about when it comes to coming out on the other side. Uh, of that experience is that Kevin has actually done a lot of consulting for the government. He's testified before Congress on ways to improve. He's done consulting around the world on how to improve our systems and then also make them more aware of the um, of the ways that humans can kind of work in and bypass several layers of technology. Yeah, it, Kevin's idea really is it's easier to hack the human than hack the technology. Absolutely. One of the things that he did is he joined the cleaning crew so he had physical access and then while at 2 a.m they're cleaning the building he's jacking in and putting in devices uh to the phone systems because back in the 80s and 90s the connectivity was really through modems not through broadband and fiber that we have today um, i actually have a couple of his books one's the art of deception and i'll put notes in the uh i'll put the, the links to the books in the notes because i i definitely uh, respect the reformed Kevin Mitnick. And I just read the cuckoo's egg, which again is from the mid eighties. And what, what Kevin did and what the cuckoo's egg talks about is really the genesis of information security. And how back then people didn't think it was wrong to get on a machine that didn't belong to them. It was kind of like if you're in a parking lot and you're lifting up the door handle for all the cars and if they're locked, fine, you move on. But if you find one that's unlocked, oh, that's an invitation. I'm allowed to go into their car. 
Oh, well, look, they left their keys. I'm now allowed to take their car. That was a method, uh, a mentality that we certainly don't have now in large part because of what we've seen and some of the, the really you know terrible things that have happened through, uh, through hacks. No, before though, as a company, which as I've said, Perry works for, is a pioneer and one of the top notch firms for training folks. My next question for you, Perry, is that most folks see technology as the key to solving cybersecurity challenges by the next firewall, by the flavor of the month, this new AI tool, and it's buy, 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 deploy, 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 and move on to the next one. But know before and you take a different tact. Tell me about that mindset and how you've seen industry change and the mentality change, if at all, by looking at the human versus the technical. If I were to frame this a little bit, one of the things that I would say has come out of the past few decades is that um, I see over and over and over again that people in the security world and people in the IT world, um, we tend to think very binary. We, we tend to think one or the other. And so lots of times when I talk about uh, needing to deal with the human and put uh, investments and uh, ways of thinking around dealing with the human side of security, people then are like, well, why would we abandon all the technology? You're saying our firewall is no good. It's like nobody is ever saying that. You know, nothing in life is really that binary. So just by saying you need to pay attention doesn't mean that what I am saying is that you need to ignore all the technology stuff. Uh, in fact, we need both. And what we see over and over and over again in security is that it really is a layered approach. And so we will have several layers of technology-based security. But if we ignore the critical part, which is the human, then we have a big gaping hole at the end of all of those other layers. So something makes it through your firewall, your endpoint protection, and so on, and it lands in front of a human, that human is going to have to make a decision. And if we have an unprepared, non-resilient human, then you've kind of left one of those critical layers of security out of the equation. So um, one of the interesting and disturbing facts is that if we look at cybersecurity spending over the past several years, what we see is that well over 95% of spending happens on traditional security technologies, um, you know, web security software, firewalls, endpoint protection platforms, all, all that you know great stuff that we use, data leak prevention and so on. Um, about 3% happens at the human layer. Now, when you think about that, that already seems a little bit off kilter, especially when you put that in light of um, two things. One would be the growing number of data breaches that we're seeing every year, and there are more and more every year. And we're seeing those, if you were to um, kind of look at the amount of spending versus the amount of data breaches uh, on a graph, and I actually show this in my uh, most recent book, the Security Culture Playbook, um, I've got a graph of security spending year over year, and it shows that, of course, going up because we always spend more, we've got inflation, we have everything else going on. Um, but then you also see the number of data breaches. And if our security spending was efficient, you would hope that your data breaches would be going down or hopefully at least flat. And what we're not seeing is that we're not seeing flat or down on data breaches. We're actually seeing increases. And so something is wrong there. If we're spending all this money and we're increasing, data breaches should not also be increasing and they're increasing faster. And so I think when you look at that, 
And then you look at that in context with like the Verizon data breach investigation report, which this latest one says 82% of data breaches can be traced back to social engineering or some form of human error. And then we go, wait, only 3% of spending is happening at the human layer. Well, then now I think I know why the data breaches still keep going up. We're not putting our spending, our focus, our investment, our time and energy and everything else in the thing that's actually the root cause that's been identified year after year after year. We keep saying, oh, I think I'll throw this new piece of technology at it. And now all of a sudden the human won't be a, a critical component anymore. When in fact, we know that any crafty cyber criminal um, will run up against the technology, say that's really hard to, but to bypass. Let me just call Bob in accounting and trick Bob into doing something for me. I love it. I, and as a matter of fact, my last episode was about, it's called Cybersecurity Con Game, where I was actually targeted as a timeshare owner by a scam. And my mm -hmm. wife also does cyber. And we're like, oh, let's play along and see how this goes down. I ended up doing a 20-minute podcast helping people understand how the attacker worked, what I did to protect myself. And then I gave us 12 steps of what people can do. And I think what you folks do at Know Before, what you folks do at Know Before is top of the line. You get it. And when you're saying it's only 3%, I worked for IBM and I know the IBM cost of a data breach survey. I use it in my presentations. I speak at conferences yeah. three or four times a year. And I'm like, there is something wrong when we're spending more and we're getting more breaches. And I literally said this, I made a joke. I said, well, gee, based off that mindset, let's all spend less, then we'll have less breaches. But we know that's not true. <laughs> and you know, I, I'd love to hear how you guys at Know Before overcome that 3% challenge. There's dollars out there. I mean, I, I'm a seller on the software side, and I think people spend too much money on software. They need to spend it on the people. How are you guys overcoming that challenge? It is our market. So it's kind of our job to try to overcome that challenge. A lot of that is through market awareness. So it's through podcasts like this, talking to people like you that will help us um, educate the uh, not only people who are currently in the market um, or currently in the workforce, but people who are coming into the workforce. We want them to start with the right understanding of where the problems really are. Um, but then the other thing is, if we're going to really learn the way that the, the, that we can start to push out in the market more, um, I think that there are some biases that we have to figure out how to overcome. One is that binary thinking of if you focus on the human then you have to not focus on technology. Um, I'm here to say we got to focus on both. Um, and anybody that says if you do one, you ignore the other, that person is is basically creating a false dichotomy. Um, that goes back to the you know philosophy degree. Um, you, you can start to understand where are the logical flaws within that type of way of, of viewing the world, and they're they're everywhere. This is not an either or discussion. This is a both and. And let's start to look at the thing that's been traditionally ignored. Um, the other thing that I do is I write a lot of books, put out a lot of uh, articles. I do a podcast called Eighth Layer Insights that's all about focusing on the human side of things. Um, so there's a lot of education that we try to do um, and a lot of market development. The other thing is that we're a mo multinational company. And um, in North America, there are a decent number of laws and regulations that now say you have to do security awareness. And we're also starting to see some encouraging traction that says, not only do you need to do 
you know, old school awareness that's um, could be boring or ineffective, but you also need to do simulated fishing training along with that, because that's the tip of the spear for a lot of these successful attacks. So we're starting to see traction there. Um, the other thing that will get us traction is once people that are doing this, especially when it comes to simulated fishing, once they do it in a more empathetic way and they stop doing it in stupid ways. And the stupid ways are, oh, I'm going to take a mindset of, I'm going to just try to trick my users and laugh at them or fire them if they fail. Um, users fail phishing tests. Um, when they fail a test, they're failing safely. So number one, that's good. You have an opportunity to intervene. The other thing is you're doing the phishing test so that you can build a habit. Um, you're actually hoping in a lot of ways that they will fail so that you can get them into training. So don't be frustrated with them. Don't laugh at them. And the other reason that they fail is because they're human. You and I would fail for a fishing test at, given the right circumstances any day of the week. And so we we have to take the high-minded mindset and looking down at our user mindset away and replace it with uh, a sense of empathy and understanding that they are and we are all human. We share in this human condition. And so once you start to shift that mindset a little bit, we can get away from some of the big failures of the past, which is we saw a lot of these during the, uh, you know, the height of the COVID lockdowns is people sending out phishing simulations saying, oh, everybody in the company is going to get a bonus. Click here to see your amount. That only hurts people and alienates them and fractures the relationship with the security team. So part of my job, part of No Before's job is to say, here's how to take an empathetic approach. We're giving you a toolbox. Like anything else, you can cause pain with a set of tools, or you can actually build something great with a set of tools. We want to show you how to build something great that's going to be effective. And then the other thing is a lot of the talk that you and I do mostly when it comes to security it probably has a very North American focus. But in reality, North America is just one country in a very large planet. There are several other areas of the planet that are just now starting to come on and say, let's let's figure out how to do the human side of things. And whereas in North America, we have to overcome a lot of baggage, a lot of history, uh, a lot of things of people thinking in this binary approach in many other newer, in many other areas of the world, um, we can have a conversation in a very fresh way and set people up for success the right way rather than having to deal with uh, a change of a mindset. That's a really interesting point. I, I want to shift gears just a moment up to my audience, the students and early professionals. Tell us what skills should these folks focus on, if any, if they want to get into a role as a social engineering defender? Your background, like you said, is in philosophy and law, minds and economics, we're arts and parties guys. What is it that other people can or should have? Is there anything specific? or would you, Engineering yeah. is good. Business is good. So talk about that. So specifically, if you're wanting to get into the social engineering side or defending against human-based attacks, um, you can't go wrong with a psychology or sociology focus. And so if you're coming out of psychology, sociology, marketing, design, all of that, you know, th those disciplines that are non-security related that we would typically think, oh, you're, you could never do cybersecurity with that, you can 
fully do cybersecurity. If you're if you have a background in marketing, uh, design, sociology, psychology, anything that touches why people think the things that they think, do the things that they do, or can influence them in that direction. And that's what all those fields are all about. So if you're just now in college, uh, maybe do a computer science or you know cybersecurity degree with a marketing minor um, or a psychology minor. Um, if you are a psychology major and you think you might want to be in uh, security at some point, you know, go full forward with that psychology degree and then maybe add computer science or something else as a minor or um, start to pick up some uh, computer related, you know, cybersecurity related training on the side to see if you really get the bug for that. Um, but but what I would say is that if you really want to focus on the human side, then you do need to understand the intricacies of behavior. And that's something that most of our cybersecurity people that have grown up and been educated on the technology side, they gleefully ignore a lot of the times, which leads us into much of the situation that we have now. So you need to not gleefully ignore that. You need to gleefully dance into it and then start to say, how do I marry these two worlds, the world of technology and the world of human behavior, and start to understand two things. One is, how do I make people interface with technology in the most risk-appropriate you know, um, risk manner? And so that can be um, helping them, uh, helping design technology or process or policies that would naturally push people into the right behavior. Uh, the other thing would be, um, to understand the friction points that exist between people and technology and to use that friction either in a positive way or a negative way. Uh, in a positive way, you can use friction to uh, discourage people from doing something that may be risky. Um, but you can also uh, use friction in such a way as that it actually reminds people that security exists. So you can you can employ different little uh, levers all along the path. And once you understand what those levers are, you can pull them at different times and in different ways to get the result that you want from a human side. I love it. You talk about my terminology for it be a zero sum game. It's either this or that. You can't have both. And you mentioned with the cyber or the, the security technical guys or gals, they may not and usually don't know the people. We need to know both. And there's actually a third facet that I bridge. That's the business side of the house. But for social engineering, for a lot of these roles, we're talking about bridging the human and the technical in a different fashion than a seller and a psychologist, if you will. But I, I love that. And I really appreciate you giving specific majors and specific areas. People think all the time, I'm not technical enough. I can't do cyber. My wife does cyber. She's a vendor manager and vulnerability operations manager. And she has a degree in industrial engineering and an MBA in finance. Those are not cyber gigs, but she's very successful at what she does. And I, I like my listeners to hear about folks like you and me and, and my wife that have different backgrounds. We're still all cybersecurity professionals. I have two more quick questions because we're running out of time. Uh, the first one, uh, next to last, I should say, is going to be, what do you look for when you bring on young employees? Oh, man, um, that's a great question because it's one that I always ask people, too, <laughs> in my show. Um, and and I think I I am in general agreement. The uh, the people that I know that really think about this for, for a long-term good for the industry perspective and a long-term growth of the employee perspective 
I think the number one thing that we all tend to look for is curiosity. There is the idea of looking at somebody based on their skill set, and that's great. That gives them maybe they can start without you know feeling underwater. But I would hire somebody that isn't 100% full up onto the skill set that I want if they are curious and hungry. Because at that point, I know that I can feed their mind and their mind, doing that will increase their drive to get the skills or to get the understanding that I need. And so that's the main quality that I'm going to look for above and beyond. Do they have this degree? Do they have this certification? Do they have anything else? Do they Are they curious? Are they hungry? Do they have a great personality that's going to get along with other people and be collaborative? I like that. That's really good. What I said my whole career, it's a lot easier to teach somebody the technology than to teach them how to be a people person. A lot of times we're either introverted or extroverted and that can be steered, but it's very difficult to completely dynamically change it. And if we find somebody with the traits you're looking for, it's much easier to have them have a nice, comfortable career uh, and not just a job. The last one is what advice do you have for new folks starting out in cybersecurity? If you're just starting out and you're looking to try to plug into the industry, then I would say finding a good supportive network is really key. You can find several on LinkedIn, a lot of uh, the different uh, groups out there and different people that really want to be mentors and uh, help people succeed. A lot of them have uh, Discord or Slack communities that they've started. And it's all really just about being able to be in constant communication with people who are going, going to encourage you, who are going to help break down barriers, who are going to give you good answers for timely questions that may come up, and then also may help shuttle you into a new job at the, whatever point in time you need it. Let's say you're, uh, the current company you're working for does a reduction in workforce, and all of a sudden you're out of a job. If you're plugged into a great supportive community, all you really have to do at that point is raise your hand and say, Hey, you know, I've, I've really learned a lot from everybody here. Uh, I have this need now. I would really be appreciative if you, if anybody can give me any leads or give me any advice on how to prepare for my next thing. And it's very common that once you raise your hand and you're in a good supportive community, you really have a leg up because now you have the possibility of bypassing all of the automated filtering and, and unconscious bias that many recruiting systems have. That's great. I actually have a number of podcasts on job hunting, how to interview. And one of the things I talk about is it's much easier if you have somebody walk you through the system versus putting your resume into the black hole of a, an HR management system. Well, yeah. thank you very much, Perry. It was it was a great conversation and uh, I hope we get to continue it again. But uh, thank you so much for, for being here. And I look forward to talking to you again. Yeah, thank you.